Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for salvation offered to us through so freely through Jesus Christ. As your word is before us now, we ask that hearts would be receptive to what you have for us. We ask this, that in all things you will be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again. This week we are in Revelation chapter 15. This happens to be the shortest book, uh, shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, only eight verses. And we have passed the halfway point in this book. And chapter 15 is a prelude to the final series of judgments that's going to be coming up in chapter 16. In review, there are three sets of judgment in the tribulation period. And first, we had the seven seals that were opened early on. And then we had the seven trumpets. And now we're about to see seven bowls. The bowls are the last series of plagues and are the most intense. The heat is being turned up. And these are going to be worse than anything we've seen so far. So let's read chapter 15. And we have a lot of scriptures to look at today. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. And on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them. And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Then I looked and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen, linen with gold sashes across their chest. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with the smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. So now we're nearing the end of the judgments which God is going to pour out on the earth. Remember that at this point, the saved in Christ will all be safely in heaven protected. These judgments are only affecting those who refuse to acknowledge the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have reached the peak of the intensity of the wrath on the world that has persistently rebelled against him. Let's look again at verse 1. I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the last the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Okay, the word God's wrath is complete. The Greek word means to reach an end or an aim. The implication is that the wrath of God will fulfill an eternal purpose. Now, God isn't just blowing off steam. 
It would be wrong to believe that God is acting out of impatience or frustration or he's just responding to a situation that's out of his control and he just, he's had it. That's not what's going on. Maybe that's the way we respond to things, but this is not what's happening here. Our ways of lashing out in out-of-control outbursts are human tendencies and they are not the same as God's measured wrath that is born from righteousness, justice, and a heart of love and compassion. God's wrath is a theme that's found throughout the Bible. For example, Romans 1.18 says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, some people are very uncomfortable talking about the wrath of God, and some question the very idea. There's a song that we sing, and it's one of my favorites, In Christ Alone My Hope Is Found. The second verse goes like this. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Now, there's a certain denomination that wasn't happy with that phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied, and they uh, just were uncomfortable with it, and they literally uh, asked the authors of the song, uh, Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty, if they would change the words to, uh, the love of God was magnified. They didn't want to sing, the wrath of God was satisfied. They did not change the words, and so that hymn was not used in the hymnal. There's nothing at all wrong with proclaiming that the wrath of God was satisfied at the cross because that's exactly what took place. In verses 3 and 4, here's the song. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Our God is worthy of all praise and adoration because he is holy and everything he does is great and marvelous. There is no one else like him who would not recognize that. In addition, he's a God of grace and love and he wants a relationship with us. So he draws us to himself, which is made possible by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God that we deserved so that you and I might have a right relationship with our creator, God. Notice that the verses uh, three and four has two names, one song, but two names. The song of Moses, which represents God's perfect law. And the song of the Lamb, representing God's perfect grace. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the song of Moses and the Lamb, they say that God's ways are just and true. That He alone is holy. His righteous deeds have been revealed. God's wrath is righteous. Let's break this song down. They praise God for and emphasize his works. Great and marvelous are his works. His ways are just and true. His worthiness. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you are holy. And his worship. All nations shall come and worship you. Note that the martyrs who are singing this song are focused on God. They are not focused on 
what they've gone through, what they've given up, what happened to them. They're all focused on who God is and what God has done. Worship is all about God, not at all about us. Let's go back to our, our point. The Song of Moses and the Lamb declares the justice of God. So God is doing the right thing by judging the earth. God is holy in his wrath and he is doing what he is doing is completely right. In Psalm 119.68, it says, You are good, and what you do is good. Again, in Psalm 145.17, The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He is filled with kindness. Yes, God is holy in all his ways, and God is a God of love. In Genesis chapter 15, and John uh, referred to this uh, last week, which I, I thought was pretty neat. It was, it was, uh, the message last week was uh, a prelude to the prelude. Is an introduction to the introduction that we're going to have. So next week we're going to go to chapter 16. And last week it was a really good message on, on and he introduced some concepts that are uh, highlighted here in chapter 15. So in, in Genesis chapter 15, God is talking to Abraham. Uh, God makes some promises to Abraham, telling him he's going to give him some property. And he tells him he's going to make a great nation. His descendants were going to become a great nation. And in Genesis 15, here's, uh, here's God's promise. And the Lord said to him, you know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God tells Abraham that he's going to do all this, but the sin of the Amorites who lived there had not reached its full measure, meaning that God was being patient for them to turn from their evil ways and repent. God was going to wait 400 years for them to turn away from evil and acknowledge him as God. Who were these Amorites? What was the big deal? What were they up to that they should repent Okay, they were a branch of the Canaanite nations, which God eventually decreed that the Israelites were to wipe out. The Canaanites were a violent, corrupt, and totally immoral people. One of the things they did, and, and this is just something that uh, I, I just, it just absolutely uh, is amazing to me. One of the things they would do is sacrifice their, uh, their living children, sacrifice a, a child in a fire to their God. I, I, I just, this is beyond uh, comprehension that this could somehow appease their God. And, and that's not the worst of it. Uh, I mean, I mean, it continued, I should say. It was, there was more. They did other terrible things in an attempt to please their false God. They would take a living child and put it in the wall of a building that they were building, whether it was their house or whether it was a place of business, in hopes that that sacrifice would give blessing to their life, success to their business. Isn't that ridiculous? And so you can, you can see God's anger and his wrath upon this evil. And yet, God patiently waited 400 years before the Israelites came in. And his instructions were to wipe them out. So God gives nations opportunity to repent before judgment. 
Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. Ezekiel 18 says, do you think that I like to see people, wicked people die, says the Sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. So one of the problems that humans see when thinking about the judgments that God pours out is that we just don't see things the way God does. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. When we look at the judgments that are being poured out by God, we are not qualified to question God. We can understand something of God's wrath when we acknowledge that he is holy and just and righteous. And while he is a God of love, he is simultaneously righteously doing all the correct things in response to humanity's rebellion against him. Romans chapter 1 and Chapters 1 and 2 have a lot to say about this. In uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn, stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. Scripture tells us that God is perfect in all his ways and mankind has no excuse for not recognizing who he is. In Romans chapter 1, we see that there's no excuse for anyone to die in their sins. Jesus said God wants all to come to repentance. In verse 18 of Romans 1, it says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, instead they become utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. God's law is written in people's hearts. Back to Revelation 15, verse 4 says, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come before you, and your righteous deeds have been revealed. Only our God in his sovereignty can exercise love, patience, kindness, and holiness, so that in the end there will be no one who can accuse him of not doing what's right. God is perfect in all his ways. Throughout all eternity, there will never be a doubt as to God's righteousness. 
No one will accuse God throughout eternity. You know what they're going to say instead? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they will say throughout eternity. Ezekiel 18, 25, yet you say the Lord isn't doing what's right. Listen to me, O people of Israel. Am I one not doing what's right or is it you? But even though today people challenge the righteousness and justice of God, there will never be any doubt throughout eternity. I think it's interesting that after having Jesus scourged, Pilate declared, I find no fault in this man. Judas, after the fact, he threw the money, the betrayal money in. And he said, I have betrayed innocent, the innocent. And of course, the thief on the cross said to the other thief, we're here because we deserve to be here. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Jesus was the innocent man dying for the guilty. Back to Revelation 15, verse 5. Then I looked and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Notice that these angels who are bringing out these bowls, they're coming directly from the presence of God. They are dressed in white and they were acting on God's authority. Some translations refer to these bowls as vials, which would kind of imply... Um, something like a vase or something like that. The actual bowls that is described here are more like a saucer, flat, and, and they would be used to, uh, you could drink out of them or you could pour, like in a, in a ritual or something, you could pour easily onto a sacrifice. And the idea that we get by looking at these bowls is that they could be emptied quickly and completely. As we come now to the final judgments, they will be carried out quickly and completely with intensity. In verse 8, the temple was filled with the smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. Interesting. No one could enter the temple until the judgment was complete. Perhaps indicating that God's judgment is irreversible. And access to his presence is not possible until the judgment is passed. This is a serious theme, isn't it? God's presence is in the temple, but there's a great cloud. We're not told why that there's this cloud. But I wonder if... These judgments are going to be poured out. There's this cloud. And I wonder if it's because time has come. God does not take pleasure in the judgment that's about to happen. But it must be done. I wonder when I think about this. I wonder about Luke chapter 19. Now, when we, when we think about Jesus and, uh, and Jesus wept was in John, right? John chapter 11, Jesus wept. There's another place where Jesus wept. In 
uh, Luke chapter 19. And I wonder about this as I think about this cloud and God's being God being hidden from what's about to take place. In Luke 19, verse 41, Jesus is is coming up upon Jerusalem as he came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead. He began to weep. He knew what was going to happen. His heart, his heart of love was there. But there was coming a time of judgment. So I wonder if that why the, the cloud was over the temple. Verse 42, he says, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God deals with sin and that's why Jesus Christ suffered a cruel death and took the awful condemnation and payment for our sins on the cross. His death was necessary because the penalty for sinning is death. Jesus Christ took God's wrath on him so that we can escape the judgment. A few verses in Isaiah 53 read this way. They give us the picture but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the sharers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. The wrath of God that we, we deserve was given to Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. I re- am reminded here of the old uh, gospel hymn. There was one who was willing to die in my stead, that a soul so unworthy might live. And the path to the cross he was willing to tread. All the sins of my life to forgive. They were nailed to the cross. They were nailed to the cross. Oh, how much he was willing to bear. With what anguish and loss Jesus went to the cross, but he carried my sins with him there. My question this morning, if you have not accepted God's free gift of salvation, if you have not accepted Opportunity to have your sins forgiven, carried away. My question is, what are you waiting for? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Have you heard God's voice calling to you? Now, there are some people who do not feel they need a Savior. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there are some who feel 
that they need to get their lives together first before God will accept them. I need to fix some things in my life because I, God's not going to take me like this. The truth is, if we could fix ourselves even a little bit, we wouldn't need to be saved, would we? We can't. We're powerless to fix our condition. Each one of us needs a Savior. Mark 2.17 says, When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. 1 Timothy 1.16 This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds, and I am the worst of them all. Scripture tells us that he is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. So if you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we would like to talk to you today and show you from scriptures how you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and you can have assurance of eternal life. Just a reminder, as we've been reading through what's going on in the tribulation, this terrible time that's going to be on the earth, the saved will be safe in heaven, safe from these judgments. God sent Jesus to take the judgment for you and for me. There are a lot of good points for us to think about in this chapter. And I would say, looking ahead to chapter 16, as we, as we proceed forward in chapter 16 and start talking about the bowls, here's a verse. And I think this is why there was a cloud in the temple. As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O O people of Israel. Why should you die? If you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, in the middle of the day, it became absolutely, completely dark. The middle of the day turned as dark as midnight. God hid his face from Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was taking on himself your sin and my sin. He was being punished so we would not have to be punished. So as we move forward, we're going to be seeing that God's final plagues are poured out in the next chapter. And it will be because sinful man has necessitated the judgment of rejecting God. Let's close in prayer with the song of Moses and the Lamb in verse 3 and 4. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love for us and for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our guilt. The innocent dying for the guilty, purchasing our redemption, making us children of God, making it possible for us to live with you forever. Thank you again for your precious word and the promise we have of eternal life with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.